Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There are certain states of mind that can be conducive to facilitating this emergence from the uh, unconscious of creative ideas. And mind-wandering, uh, we believe, is another example of an, a situation in which these unconscious ideas can bubble up to the surface. Hey everybody, it's Christine Marie Mason, your host for the Rose Woman podcast on love and liberation. But can I just tell you that since I started this, it has gone in explosive and interesting directions that I never expected. We really began looking at how living in a female body in a sort of a gentler form of woke, rising, risen rose could be undertaken. You know, we looked at collective trauma, religious programming, spiritual awareness, cycles of life, pregnancy, orgasmic experiences, diving a lot into those questions, the nature of relationships, uh, psychology, things like narcissism and jealousy. And we looked at things that are more in the collective realm, eco-spirituality, our connection to the earth. We've looked at consciousness and the cosmos. And all of these things are like a pulsation of, of awareness about how to live better, how to live more awake. You know, we did a couple of things on psychedelics, a lot on yoga, some things on meditation, bringing all the tools to bear on how to live better, live more clearly and less imprisoned by the constraints of culture and perception that we're born into and to be in more choice. Uh, so with that, how can we be in more choice is often um, a leading pathway to the connection of how do we know what we know and are we even able to see the ocean that we're swimming in and the field that studies that in terms of consciousness is called meta awareness the awareness of how we're aware and there's a particular laboratory at the university of california at santa barbara called the meta lab and the founder and director of the meta lab jonathan schooler is here with us today to talk about some of his research. He's particularly interested in questions around mind wandering or daydreaming and liminality, transliminality, these spaces that are kind of in between our consciousness, our conscious thought and our unconscious thought. And in this episode today, we are going to answer vital questions such as can falling asleep with a spoon in your hand increase your creativity or can exposure to artwork increase your openness to experience in general? And what is the key to staying young at heart, flexible in your mind and perception? One thing I love is the way Jonathan stays curious and is always willing to follow the next thread that's emergent in his work. So this curiosity is a tremendous strength, but even in the conversation around curiosity, we hit nuance. For example, do you know what deprivation curiosity is? So we're going to start by talking 
to Jonathan about mind wandering. So don't let your mind wander. Stick with us as we explore meta awareness. Maybe we can tell us in simple terms what your research at the Meta Lab is all about and why that might matter for everyday people. Yeah, so we are broadly interested in consciousness and understanding various different aspects of the stream of thought, the thoughts that cross our mind from one moment to the next. And one of the big things that we've been interested in is mind wandering. And my favorite example of mind wandering is when you're reading and you know that this is something important and that you can't think about something completely unrelated at the same time. And yet routinely, we all have the experience of at some point as we're reading, realizing that our eyes have been moving across the page, but our mind has been completely elsewhere. We've essentially lost track of what our minds were thinking about. We were intending to focus on the reading, but instead we were mind wandering, thinking about an upcoming vacation. And so uh, much of our research has focused on this process of mind wandering. What are the costs of mind wandering? How are the ways in which mind wandering is problematic? How does the brain behave when we're mind wandering? What are some of the signals uh, that are physiological signals that people are mind wandering? Uh, and then uh, also, what are some of the things that we can do about it? How can we keep our minds uh, more where we want them to be? Uh, and then lastly, uh, why do we mind wander so often if it's so problematic? Yeah, why couldn't it be a, a pointer to creativity or to a positive aspect? Well, and that's actually one of the things that we're, uh, we're finding, that there is a positive aspect to mind wandering, that one of the reasons why we mind wander is that it is a, a potent source of creativity. And so really, it's a matter of finding balance of, of mind wandering at the right times. Uh, if you're taking a, a walk in the park, great time for mind wandering. If you're a surgeon doing a, an, an important surgery, mm, not a good time no. for mind wandering. So it's really about judicious mind wandering. So you're getting into the area of controlling your thoughts, controlling your focus. In the yoga traditions, the idea of yoga's chitta vritti narodaha is often translated as the absence of having thought. But what it actually means is your ability to direct your thought, to control the fluctuations of the mind. So you're you're sort of engaged in a extension of an ancient inquiry into the relationship between self and mind. That's exactly right. And in fact, we've looked at various different approaches for trying to control mind wandering. And what we find to be the most effective technique, the technique that has produced the most consistent benefits is meditation. Uh, and meditation, if any, if if you've ever tried meditation, which for you have, you know that it's it's an exercise in catching your mind wander. You're sitting there, you're trying to focus on your breath or whatever your anchor is, and routinely uh, you'll experience, unless you're very well trained, uh, you'll experience your mind drifting off, and then you catch it, which we call meta awareness, and then you gently bring it back. And what we find is that uh, people who practice meditation who learn how to sit and try to hold their focus and then catch their mind wandering and bring it back, that that practice helps to reduce mind wandering in other contexts. So in, in one study led by my former graduate student, Michael Morazic, uh, we found that individuals who were uh, given two weeks of meditation practice 
uh, compared to people who were given an active control of nutrition training, uh, that they showed reduced mind wandering and actually improved reading performance. They actually were better able to attend to the material and, and do better, like almost like a, like a Stanley Kaplan course. They were improving on their GRE reading exam by virtue of having practiced meditation and reducing their mind wandering. In as little as two weeks. In as little as two weeks, that's right. In, in another study, we had participants focus on the breath while engaging in a very monotonous task in which you basically have to press a button every time you see a number, unless it's the number three, and the number three is only occasionally coming up. So you're basically just sitting there pressing a button monotonously, and it's very easy to accidentally mind wander and press the button when the three appears, and that would that counts as an error. And in this study, we just had people engage in a couple of minutes of mindful breath meditation prior to it, and just that brief activity was sufficient to reduce the degree of mind wandering that individuals did during this task. So, so meditation can have benefits for mind wandering in a relatively short amount of time. I mean, I can see it having so many applications in almost any position, particularly the watcher positions, guarding and staying vigilant, you know, don't go to sleep on that important watch uh, or drift away. So when you're looking at meditation and meditation techniques, is there one that's better than another? We have not done a systematic uh, analysis of uh, comparing one technique to another with respect to reducing mind wandering. The, the technique that we were primarily using was a breath focused meditation. So watching the breath, anchoring on the breath, and then allowing yourself to catch it when it drifts off. But we've done others as well. We have an app uh, that we're using in high schools around the country called Finding Focus. And there, rather than um, focusing on the breath, because high school students just don't find that very engaging, we have them listening to music and using the music as the anchor. And we find that these daily beats, they're five-minute meditations, these also lead to reductions in mind-wandering. So it seems that there are a number of different approaches that can be helpful for uh, grounding, anchoring the mind, and giving someone the opportunity to systematically catch the mind when it wanders. Beautiful. I mean, use the term meta-awareness before, an awareness of your awareness or an awareness of your thoughts. That also seems to be the fruit of practice. Like, how do you know what you know? What part of you is knowing that you know? Yeah. I am really fascinated with meta-awareness. In fact, my lab is called the Meta Lab. We're interested in, in all things meta, but meta-awareness I think is especially interesting. Let's come back to the example of mind wandering while reading. I mean, everybody knows that you can't read and be thinking about something completely unrelated to it. Uh, and yet routinely we do it. And what seems to be going on here is that people haven't noticed that their minds have wandered. One way that we got at this was we had people reading text, uh, War and Peace. It turns out that people mind wander quite a bit while trying to read <laughs> War and Peace. And we had two different ways of measuring mind wandering. First, we had them press a button every time they noticed that they were mind wandering. And that's a measure of meta-awareness because you just are essentially pressing the button saying, I just noticed that my mind is wandering. But then, 
periodically we would ping them and go, just now, were you mind wandering? And what we found is that routinely we would catch people mind wandering before they noticed it themselves. And so this shows the lapse of meta-awareness. Here they are in a study. They're supposed to be attending to the text. They're supposed to be telling us when they're mind wandering, but routinely we were able to catch them before they noticed it themselves. In another study, we were able to manipulate meta-awareness. We did this using a technique that many people avail themselves of from time to time. We gave them alcohol. So they're doing the same paradigm that I described before, and they're given alcohol, but they don't actually know. It's, uh, there's a placebo alcohol beverage, and it, it has the same sort of smell, so they don't know whether or not they've actually had it. But the participants who actually received alcohol, they basically showed a one-two punch of the alcohol. On the one hand, they were more than twice as likely to be caught by the probe, mind wandering. So they were uh, really lacking meta-awareness of the mind wandering and doing it a lot, but they were less likely to self-catch. They were less likely to notice that their minds were wandering. So it seems that alcohol has this one-two punch in which on the one hand, it reduces meta-awareness so you're less likely to notice your lapses. And on the other hand, it increases the likelihood that you'll have lapses. And this may be one of the reasons why it's so dangerous to drive on alcohol, because you're more likely to have a lapse and less likely to realize it. Or to have a serious conversation. Yeah. Well, you know, one of those meaningful conversations, like um, your inhibitory gates are, are a little bit more open and you might not regulate as much as you would sober. Right, and that actually may be one of the uh, the values of of alcohol. My uh, friend and colleague uh, Ted Slingerland, who goes by Edward Slingerland, has a book called uh, Drunk, and he basically makes the argument that uh, alcohol has played a key role in the advancement of civilization because uh, many agreements and many advances happen when people um, are uh, intoxicated, and it may be that meta-awareness is very helpful uh, for letting you realize when you're uh, mind-wandering and, and so on and so forth, but it, it can also be associated with self-consciousness and, and excessive inhibition, and so there, there may be a place for alcohol, and uh, particularly in conversation, and helping people to sort of relax their meta-awareness and, and speak more frankly. That's interesting. You know, I do a lot of art, and it, it's not so much that I need to be not sober to create, but I definitely need to be in a place of non-self-consciousness or everything gets shut down. And I I wonder about that, like this tightness, this like uh, tightly controlled self, the constructed self, the socially responsible person who's going through the checklist. That's a very hard place to create from. Yeah, so there's research on a phenomenon known as flow. Uh, and this is where you are just in deep concentration and uh, you can lose time. And oftentimes artists report being in flow. And one of the key aspects of the flow experience is this lack of self-awareness. You, you don't even realize you're in flow when you're in flow. You're just that absorbed. And in fact, the death of flow happens when you think to yourself, oh, this is great. I'm in flow. And then boom, <laughs> it knocks you right out of it. So yeah, there really does seem to be there's sort of a time and a place for meta-awareness. If you're mind-warning, if you're off on the wrong course, then meta-awareness is very useful for creating a adjustment. But if you're right where you want to be, then oftentimes it's ideal to be able to just put meta-awareness aside 
and just be able to just be present with the experience itself. Is mind wandering the same as daydreaming? Some people make a distinction between mind wandering and daydreaming. Some people, for example, think of mind wandering is when you've got some other task going on. So you're reading. And if you're daydreaming while you're reading, then that's mind wandering because you sort of drifted away from the task at hand. Whereas daydreaming is if you're, say, just sitting at a desk, staring off into space. But we don't typically make that distinction. We treat mind wandering and daydreaming as uh, synonymous. And it should be pointed out that there's a lot of different definitions of mind wandering out there. And we treat the definition of mind wandering very much like what Wittgenstein talks about when he talks about family resemblances and concepts such as a game. There's there's no single definition of a game. You might think that a game involves playing between two people, but of course they're solitaire. Uh, you might think that games require winning and losing, but there are all sorts of games where you don't win or lose. There's no single definition. And we think the same is true for a mind wandering. There's sort of a quintessential examples of mind wandering, but the Exactly where the cutoffs are is uh, is is difficult to say, and we therefore lump mind wandering and daydreaming together, essentially as internal thought that is disconnected from the external world. Mm. I, I saw this funny meme the other day. It's like a book is the ultimate psychedelic because you're looking at marks made on an old piece of tree and hallucinating wildly. Yeah, <laughs> it seems to be a, a similar a similar idea. Okay, so when we were at this uh, consciousness conference, there was a paper that was presented around the way ideas come to the surface in the brain, that they're sort of wrestling with each other to make it up kind of a f up to the final four, and then ultimately they surface into consciousness. I think the researchers used the example of remembering someone's name. And they point out that we really have no idea like where memory is stored and where ideas are stored in our brain or how our brains function, like we can't control them. You talk about the tip of the tongue feeling, and there's something that I that I keep trying to find a word for. It's it's the sense of of like the emergence of a thought or an idea from the mist of the mind. You know, you can feel it coming, but but it, it's not quite tip of the tongue. It's like got a shape. It's like coming out of the fog, and, and then boom, it'll pop into consciousness. But that whole period before that is just a murk. And I'm wondering if that model that they're proposing, this sort of struggle between prioritized ideas or information or other models, like how do you think ideas are forming? And maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Sure. Well, that's a, that's a great and uh, very rich uh, question. I mean, I would say that we certainly do know many things about memory and, and where it takes place. For example, the hippocampus plays an, a, a very fundamental role in memory. Uh, Broca's area plays a, a very important place in, in, in language. And uh, we know that uh, memories are also distributed throughout the uh, frontal cortex. Uh, they initially sort of are formed by the hippocampus, but then they uh, get um, stretched out. But as an individual, we don't know what's going on in our brain. We just sort of experience these, these thoughts uh, coming to mind. And they're uh, is so much that we don't know. But a, a couple of thoughts that I think are, are helpful in sort of thinking about that. Uh, one thing is, is the tip of the tongue. And what we know about the tip of the tongue is that we can oftentimes have genuine access to a lot of information about the sought for word, even if we can't get the word itself. We can tell you uh, it begins with a particular letter. We can tell you how many syllables it has. So we actually do seem to have 
have some access to some of the properties of these items before they make it fully to mine. There, there is this sort of inchoate uh, emergence of the experience. And then there's a concept which I love as a as a concept, although the research on it is is far less satisfying, called transliminality. So that's a good word to use in cocktail parties. Good word of the day. Right, yeah. So there's subliminal, and that's information that's going on below consciousness. And then there's superliminal, and that's information that is conscious. And then there's transliminal, which is the information that is crossing between conscious and unconscious. It's the the emerging from the depths of the unconscious into consciousness. And there, there are certain times when transliminality is especially operative. One really interesting time is right when you're falling asleep. As you're falling asleep, you can enter a state known as the hypnagogic state. And this is a state that uh, has been appreciated for some time. Both Edison and Salvador Dali took advantage of it. Salvador Dali would would go to sleep with a spoon in his hand and Edison with ball bearings. But the key thing is, is that when they, as they fell asleep and they entered this hypnagogic state, their hand would relax, the ball bearing or the spoon would fall and they'd wake up and write down whatever creative ideas were happening in their mind at that time. Mm. It is that this is sort of an opportunity to, to access those uh, unconscious processes. And there was a, a paper that just recently came out. Uh, Robert Stickgold was, I believe, the senior author on it. And in this, they had a, a device that was measuring people's hand opening called uh, Dormio. And they gave people a word, tree, I believe was the word they gave them. And then they would wake them up right uh, when they entered this state of hypnagogia and ask them to come up with creative uses uh, for a tree. And when they woke them up at that particular time, their access to the creative uses was markedly improved. So it seems that there are certain states of mind that can uh, be conducive to facilitating this emergence from the uh, unconscious of creative ideas. And mind wandering, uh, we believe, is another example of an, a situation in which these unconscious ideas can bubble up to the surface. This is beautiful. I'm going to add that to my dream therapy. I had a guest on maybe a year ago, Sylvia Gover, who talked about using the eight hours of your sleep as a unconscious therapy, accessing the subconscious and all these techniques to capture what your insights were, like asking the question before bed and then immediately writing them down before you even begin moving, essentially. But I love this adding in this... Uh, We'll call it the Salvador Dali technique and trying to see if you can capture it in the liminal space. That's really cool. Yeah. I'll report back to you. Okay. Let me know how that goes. I remember being captivated by this idea that there is no like really firm moment of, of dusk dawn in the daily cycle of the planet. It's like there's a astronomical twilight, nautical twilight, you know, there's twilight dusk, you know, then sunrise, but that there are these, uh, the, the liminal stages are also not just a single channel. They, they have these infinite gradations of nuance. This transliminality probably works the same way. Yeah. It's a really uh, important point to recognize the sort of the continuum uh, as we gradually enter 
hypnagogia and then gradually drift off into into deep sleep. There are other times that are also particularly useful for transliminality. So REM sleep seems to also be a time when uh, individuals have opportunity to access the sort of the percolations of the mind. And uh, many individuals have uh, reported having uh, creative ideas during a REM sleep that they're then able to use later on. And, and so you're absolutely right that it's a good idea to uh, set an intention of making progress on a particular uh, creative problem. Uh, and then when one wakes up in the morning, sort of reviewing their thoughts and seeing what might have emerged. And then also, as I mentioned before, we find that mind wandering seems to be a, a key time when creative ideas take place. We had creative writers and physicists keep a nightly diary about when they had their creative ideas. We found that about 20% of their creative ideas happened, not while they were uh, at work, not when they were actively pursuing the problem, but when they were mind wandering, they'd be taking a walk or taking a shower, maybe even writing a check. And all of a sudden, some creative idea would burst through from the unconscious. Um, and these ideas, the ideas that they had while mind wandering were as creative as the ones that they had when they were at their desk. And it's it's kind of interesting that how many things can you do uh, as well when you're not trying to do them as when you're actively pursuing them. But in addition to being as creative as the ideas that they had when they were actively pursuing the problem, we also found that they were more likely to involve aha experiences. So this experience of aha may be one of the markers of a, an idea that sort of bubble up from the unconscious and more likely to overcome, to involve overcoming an impasse. And we think this is really important that there are certain kinds of ideas, the ones that you need to sleep on, literally, where creative incubation can be helpful. And those are the kind which mind wandering seem to be the most helpful for. Yeah, there's a idea in some of these practices like try easy, that, that instead of trying hard, back off, give it some space, like you just rebooted the microphone, like give it some space to reboot, and then it comes back online with a higher clarity and higher resolution. You said, what did you say? We do as well in leisure sometimes. That seems quite oppositional to the dominant culture in the United States. Yeah, I think that we need to appreciate that that leisure, that the taking breaks, that particularly walks in nature, uh, that these can be really fertile opportunities for making uh, progress. And, and sometimes you can get more done by not working than by working. I mean, of course you can take this too far. And uh, sometimes the best thing to do is just to force yourself to sit there and push through that initial inertia. But sometimes uh, a break can really be very helpful. And uh, as an example, more research needs to be done on this. And this is actually uh, a project that we had on the back burner for too long. but. I am quite persuaded that when you experience one of these tip of the tongue experiences where you it's just on the tip of your tongue and you can't get it, that just backing off, thinking about something else is the best way to, to solve it. We, we did do one study where we induced tip of the tongue and then we looked to see how often did people uh, come up with the solution. And the more people mind wandered, the more likely they were actually to, so that is the more they stopped trying to come up with a solution and mind wandered about something else, the more likely they were to actually come up with a solution to their tip of the tongue problem. So backing off, I think, really can be helpful in some situations. 
My tip of the tongue, by the way, evidence is, is always an image. I can see the picture in my mind's eye of the person or whatever, but I can't find the word. I feel like there's some kind of disconnect between the visual processor and the language processor when that's happening. I don't know if that's got any merit. Yeah, well, it, it also can happen, you've probably experienced this, where you see somebody and you're like, they remind me of somebody. Who is it that this person uh, reminds me of? And you can you can almost get who the person is that they're reminding you of, but, but not quite. And, and that feeling is very reminiscent, I think, of the tip of the tongue experience. So I remember many years ago visiting the Nobel Museum in Stockholm, and they had an exhibit on where people got their Nobel Prize winning ideas and the conditions under which they arose. And the, one was under conditions of deep focus, and those were brought about disproportionately at war or in environment when, when everything else was stripped away in wartime scenarios or in highly coddled situations where you don't have to you know, do your own laundry or do your own food. You're just provided for like in elite institutions. And then they looked at insights, Nobel Prize winning insights on walking in the park or watching a child at play, like some kind of unrelated inspiration. Many people had insights on mind altering substances or like almost a spiritual experience. And then all of a sudden they would see and some had them in dreams. So it's very, I feel it's very interesting to sort of see the evidence from world-changing ideas on creativity. It would be great to be able to, you know, study a bunch of people who are going to win uh, the Nobel Prize and and uh, see when they have their ideas in, in real time. One of the challenges that we face in this kind of research is a retrospective uh, reports. And over time, people's memories of how the particular ideas uh, happen can, can evolve through you know, telling the story and, and so on. So this was one of the advantages of the study that we did is that we were basically testing people about their creative ideas uh, right when the idea happened or within within 24 hours. But uh, we didn't have, at least uh, as far as I know, anybody um, come up with a Nobel Prize winning idea during that period. So there's always this trade-off between uh, looking at uh, the more control that you can have on the smaller C, that's, you know, creativity with a small C, the smaller creative ideas. It's important to look at those really big ideas, but then you have the challenge of uh, oftentimes it's it's very retrospective and there's there's a lack of, of control. But I do think that that in general, the spirit of the kinds of things that people were telling you was was likely accurate, that, that people have their creative ideas sometimes deeply immersed working on the problem. Other times they have them uh, in the shower, and and oftentimes they have them uh, in a conversation. I was talking with we have a Nobel laureate here, David Gross, and he was saying that oftentimes his best ideas happen in conversation, where he'll say something and it'll go, "Whoa, what just came out of my mouth?" Uh, and it is kind of intriguing that that just the act of a back and forth with others can be a source of inspiration. Yeah, I, I had a friend who used to say, "I, I don't know what I." think until I say it out loud, like something like that. I'll know what I think when I say it or something. I, I don't know. I'll tighten that up. That's a yeah. I, I wonder now with where you're at, this prolific career, this meta lab, uh, really diving into these questions in your personal life, what have you found to be the ways to train your mind, stay on task, Find that balance between exploratory dancing of the mind and focus and creativity for yourself. What are your practices and what works for you? 
They say that uh, research is me search. <laughs> uh, and uh, I came by uh, the study of mind wandering uh, quite honestly when I was uh, in first grade. My first grade teacher, uh, Mrs. Shork, uh, started her report card with me saying, when I think of Jonathan, I imagine him at the end of the line, shoes untied, five feet behind everybody else, completely preoccupied and yet totally content. <laughs> so I've been um, I've been mind wandering and and struggling with a distraction uh, for for some time. And, and I can't I can't really claim to have um, fully uh, solved the problem, but I can share some things that I find helpful. Uh, one thing is to uh, make time for mind wandering. So taking walks in nature, um, not using the phone all the time, you know, when waiting in line, just putting the phone down and just letting my mind go where it wants, recognizing that there is productivity and value in just letting one's mind go where it wants. And that if you don't give it that opportunity, it's going to, it's going to make it. So making time for mind wandering, I found to be uh, very helpful. I also find that, uh, that meditation is very helpful in enabling me to notice my mind wandering that um, I want to, I want to mind wander, but I want to be able to have uh, some sense of when I'm doing it. And, and there definitely are times when uh, I don't want to be mind wandering. And so practicing meditation has been, been very helpful for that. And then something that again, I'm not um, uh, terrific at, but building in routines in one's uh, daily life, finding a time every day that one is going to uh, write or do that uh, productive thing that, that one wants to do. Uh, and then uh, sometimes a strategy that I've been hit or miss with, but when I am able to do it really works, is committing to working without interruption for 25 minutes and then giving myself a, um, a five minute break. Something where I know that I'm going to have that break coming, so I'm just going to really stay focused. And then sometimes the 25 minutes comes up and I'm like, actually, no, I want to, I don't want the break. I want to keep going. Those are great tips. And you also do a lot of exploratory cultural things, festivals, and like you take yourself out into spaces where you're exposed to creative people, right? Yeah, well, that's a whole other really interesting area and interest. One of the things that we're really excited about at the moment is a personality trait called openness to experience. It's one of the big five and it involves curiosity, creativity, taking on new tasks, cultivating curiosity. And um, it's associated with um, a lot of important characteristics such as intellectual humility, such as uh, creativity. And we believe that this is a trait that there certainly are individual differences. I've you know, I was high in openness to experience back in first grade, but you can also cultivate it. And so, for example, we've developed an app where encouraging people to do something new every day. And that actually led to some increases in openness to experience. Right now, we're doing research looking at the impact of art. And we find that exposure to art can create a state of openness to experience, which can then lead to increases in creativity and intellectual humility and curiosity and conceptual expansiveness. So uh, going to a museum or, or watching, we're looking at artistic video shorts or watching quality video shorts. These types of activities can lead to uh, increases in the state of openness, which may have um, uh, real benefits. But we also think that you want to keep 
openness can be very valuable, but we also um, know that openness is associated with distraction. It can be associated with, with recklessness. And so combining openness, cultivating openness and mindfulness may be really sort of a, uh, a win-win situation where the openness allows you to discover new ideas and the mindfulness provides the ground, the grounding and preventing you from being excessively distracted. And so they were calling open mindfulness. Yeah, the idea of the flow of the river and then the channels of the river both being necessary to have a river. Exactly. You know, you have the, the structure and the channel. Hesed and Gavora, I think, in uh, Kabbalah. Uh, you know, you said the word intellectual humility as a, as a in, in this context, can you describe what that means here? Yeah, what intellectual humility uh, means, and it's really something that I, the world could really use more of, is a, a appreciation of uh, alternative uh, perspectives, whereas one may see value in the perspective that they have, but they also see value in alternative perspectives. And it leads to listening to people who you might uh, disagree with. It leads to a uh, willingness to change your mind in the face of uh, new evidence and to uh, basically uh, just being a little bit more sensitive to the fact that we rarely have it all wrapped up and that it's oftentimes very valuable to gain new information and to change our understanding in the face of that new information. Yeah, that's beautiful. It's also the humility part. I think I, what I like about the word humility is when it's returned to the idea of humus, like being grounded, being of the earth, like you're one part in the process of creation, like one part in the whole web, and that there's always something to learn. You're just earth, just dirt, like all other dirt. Yeah, I love that. And I think this idea that there's always something to learn is is really sort of at the heart of, of curiosity. And uh, what we find is that there are multiple kinds of curiosity and they they serve sort of uh, different functions there's general interest curiosity which is just this delight in uh, learning new information and and this seems to be really at the heart of uh, openness to experience and of the exploration of, of of new ideas there's another kind of curiosity which also we think has value but also has a little bit of a dark side called deprivation curiosity. And that's where you can't stand not knowing something. You need to know something and you feel uncomfortable not knowing it. And, and the challenge with deprivation curiosity is that because it's driven by this displeasure at, of, the, of not knowing, it causes people sometimes to prematurely foreclose and think that they know things that they don't know. So Deprivation curiosity is actually associated with not intellectual humility, but with a certain sort of intellectual arrogance, thinking you know things you don't know because you don't like the feeling of not knowing something. And we even find that it's associated with believing and an interest in sharing fake news because, oh, yes, I know that and I'm going to tell other people about it. So it's, it's important to be curious, but it's important to be curious in such a way that you cultivate the pleasure of learning and of gaining new information as opposed to dreading the experience of of not knowing something. Oh, I just love this. I love the subtlety with which you as an academic approach these questions because you know it's so easy to just have like a absolutist like a mimetic thing of oh be curious, but there's so much nuance. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Can I just tell you by the way that I love little Jonathan. 
I love Mrs. Schuler. I love that she, that I, this picture of you just kind of like happily being a child, kind of like enjoying the world and enjoying your thoughts and enjoying your incarnation. I just love that little boy. It was very sweet. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm still, still quite attached to it. And I do think that, that it's important to maintain that childlike wonder and that we value so much being mature and adult, but I think keeping that childlike wonder in us all is is really uh, an important thing. And uh, I certainly have tried over the years to uh, keep that first grade Jonathan at the end of the line alive. Is uh, there anything that's happening at Meta or at, at your lab or in stuff that you're preparing that you want to bring people's attention to? We're really excited about really coming to understand how art can impact the state of openness to experience. We think that um, this is a, a quality that really can be nurtured, that we can uh, get people to have various different experiences that can cause them to experience exploration and enjoy exploration, and that cultivating that really may be of, of, of great value. It's interesting, the experience of openness to experience is something that tends to dwindle as we get older. And it's really kind of a being young at heart. And so keeping a little bit of that young at heart, we think is good. It, of course, as one gets older, one learns the things they like and the things that they don't like. So there, there certainly are good reasons to cut off some avenues, but, but continuing to discover new things we think is really uh, a valuable opportunity. And we think that art has serves this really important purpose. Art is important for its own sake. It just is a value. And we, we certainly think that uh, people should be appreciated art just for art's sake alone. But we also think that we can come to increasingly recognize the value that art plays in terms of keeping people fresh, open-minded, and creative. Are you aware of how you're aware? Some of the takeaways I have from this episode are to really drop into the intention of seeing more art and exposing myself to more creative places and to try to find a way to interrupt that hypnagogic state, the liminal state between sleep and wake to see what wisdom might be gleaned from that. I'm also committing from this episode to be more aware of when I'm daydreaming and when I'm being mindful of my mind wandering and why, you know, someone told me recently to just keep going toward what brings you true joy and where you're really lit up and to continue to make your life a process of refining away the dross, the stuff that doesn't serve. And in that process of becoming increasingly focused, all forces will align to support you. And I feel like this mind wandering and daydreaming have something to do with that. So you can find Jonathan Schooler at the Metal Lab at UC Santa Barbara. We have put the link to the art exercises app that he described, sort of how to expand your creativity in the show notes. I'm very, very happy that you join me for these weekly musings and investigations. And if you enjoyed the show, please text the link to someone. Please leave a comment in the Apple Podcasts interface. That really helps a lot. Subscribe if you can. And, you know, let me know how we're doing. Are we serving you with interesting content 
that adds value to your life? And what would you like to hear about in 2024? I'm going to continue uh, refining the positioning and the offering so that the conversations are really actionable and good. Okay, I appreciate you listening so much. Please visit me at the.rose.woman on Instagram and visit my company at rosebudwoman on Instagram and see what you can find for beautiful gifts for yourself and for things that can heal and celebrate your perfect, beautiful embodiment all the days of your life. Bye.